the church is Christ's institution. Sometimes we don't like to think as the church as an institution. People, I don't like institution. But Christ created the church. And every institution, every establishment needs polity. You need structure. You need to know who belong to that group. If you think that the church is composed of believers and unbelievers all together, then you're going to look at church polity, especially as the means of restraining evil. It's terrifying, in my opinion, pastors who do not care about membership. So you're telling me they're going to give an account for everyone who shows up at your church? Not me, brother. I'm going to give an account to those who committed themselves to my care by becoming members of the church. Not everyone who shows up here <laughs> is part of the flock that I'm going to give an account. To be baptized is a political manifesto. For you are declaring that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your allegiance. When you're baptized, your allegiance is no longer to a monarch, to a dictator, to the Republican Party, to the Democratic Party. Your ultimate allegiance belongs to whom? The Lord Jesus. Would you please open your Bibles to the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read a few verses in chapter 10, then chapter 11, and then chapter 12. <clears throat> and I want to invite you to stand if you can. So first, chapter 10, let's read verses 14 through 17. Paul says, inspired by the Spirit of God, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now chapter 11, right there, verses 27 through 30. You're going to see there is a key word that keeps repeating here. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now chapter 12 Verse 12 through 14. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing once again. Yes, Father, we are in need of your word. Please speak to us. Help us. Help us to understand the importance of polity in the life of the church. You are indeed a God of order and structure. The Lord Jesus, you are the king of the church. So please help us. Help us to understand how you have established your people. So we ask that you'd gird 
on the mighty sword. And please attend to our prayer. And help us. Help us to leave this place not only with a, a bigger mind and a bigger brain, but a bigger heart full of affection and love towards you and your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We all know, we all here know of people, and maybe some of us could fit into this group of people who used to live a, a normal life. They never cared about what they were eating, what they were doing, until the day that they got a phone call from the doctor. And suddenly that blood exam or some sort of exam you have to do pointed some very, very serious thing in your body. Maybe stage 4 cancer or diabetes. And suddenly a great preoccupation now starts to take over your mind as to what you are doing. What you are eating. The habits now that you have. Those things that prior to that awareness were never a concern for you, now they're vital. There's preoccupation, awareness, alertness to those things that prior to the state of emergency were neglected and overlooked, right? How many of us lived our lives, were eating whatever we wanted, doing whatever we wanted, until the time that's... Uh, 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 and suddenly you are aware, alert to your lifestyle. And church polity is similar to the situation. It's one of those subjects that nobody cares until the moment that everybody cares, right? Church polity puts you to sleep until you wake up to be in the midst of a nightmare where the polity of the church is crucial for your well-being. We saw last Lord's Day the example of a very well-known church, Mars Hill, and you remember what happened after the church fell apart. You remember the testimony of pastors in town saying, I had never heard so many people coming to our church. And before they even said their names, they were asking about church polity. It's because that nightmare woke them up to the importance of church polity. The same thing, we were talking last Wednesday, the same thing happened to Many of us, we have been churches where a moment of crisis revealed the importance of biblical church polity. Just to review church polity, and some of you I remember telling me that you thought that I was wrong. I should be saying church policy. <laughs> no, there is a word, polity. <laughs> some people are like, I was about to correct you. You're saying polity, and I thought it was policy. No, church polity, it's real. Church polity is a temporary, or let, let's, going back to what we saw last Lord's Day, uh, church polity refers to how a church is structured. It refers to who makes decisions in the church, which decisions are made by whom, what are the qualifications for those making the different decisions, and what the parameters of authority uh, belong to each group in the church. I like what Mark Garcia says. He says, Church polity is a temporary ordering provision by which Jesus Christ, the true shepherd of souls, preserves and secures his church's future. We usually don't think about church polity like that, as God's Christ's gracious provision for his church to preserve the structure and order in the life of his people. And I like what he says, he continues, he says, Church polity may seem to some like dreary stuff. But when seen this way, as a glorious provision of Christ to preserve and secure the church's future, then he says, when we look at church polity this way, he says, meditation on the ordering of the church can lead the saint's heart to sing rather than slumber. And that's my prayer, that as we are walking through church polity, this subject that might seem so boring and so irrelevant. I, I pray that instead of falling asleep, our hearts would sing to the Lord for His care towards His people. Amen. So here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We're going to be looking at church polity and church membership, and then church polity and the church ordinances. 
We usually don't think about ordinances as part of polity, but you will see how it's a vital portion. So, let's first look at church polity and church membership. Just remember that the church is Christ's institution. Sometimes we don't like to think as the church as an institution. People, I don't like institution. But Christ created the church. And every institution, every establishment needs polity. You need structure. You need to know who belongs to that group. We saw, just to review, and that's important for us to keep in mind, church polity establishes who possess authority over the process of membership. We are talking about church membership. Discipline, the role of baptism, the Lord's Supper, ordinances. Polity creates leadership offices in the church, demarcates their responsibilities and jurisdictional boundaries. Also, church polity <coughs> indicates how significant decisions in the life of the church will be made. And church polity delineates the nature of the relationship between a church and other churches or denominational structures. And as we are, especially, we saw the first one, church polity related to the membership of the church. The first, as we move from what, means, what, what it means for us to be reformed, what it means to be Baptist, the, the first thing we look at was the importance of the church, and the second thing that we look at was the nature of the church. And that has been the heart of the Baptists. The first Baptist is to be very clear as to the nature of the church and to establish that the church is an assembly of people who have been saved. It's not a mixed congregation. It's actually a group of people whom the triune God has saved. Haken, he says, Regenerated church membership is the foundational Baptist distinctive. Regenerate church membership affirms that formal identification with the body of Christ is only, only for those who have acknowledged Christ's lordship over their lives by faith. That's all you read earlier from the 1689, that the churches are composed of what? Visible saints. Saints are those who are in Christ Jesus. So as you think about church polity, the most, the most fundamental aspect of church polity is the membership. Let's say the church membership is the most basic aspect of church polity and governance. You think about, there is no church without membership. The members of the church form the church, Amen. You don't have a body without the members. So, there is no membership apart from, there is no church apart from membership. And we also saw that there is no church apart from uh, the polity, the structure of the church. You must have structure, you must have ways of governing that group of people. Therefore, if there is no church without membership and there is no church without polity, there is no polity without what? Membership. Membership is the first and most important aspect of church polity. Lehman says, Jonathan Lehman, he says, Membership is always the first and most basic matter of polity and governance because it is the members bound together in a particular fashion and for a particular end that constitute a polity. Every other matter of church polity concerning offices, decision-making, and churches' relationship to other churches derives from this first matter. And you look at the situation, especially the church in America, how little, how little we make of church membership. The lack of priority of church membership. And then you see how that affects the polity of the church and that affects the structure of the church. So we believe that the membership of the church is always, always composed of those men and women 
who are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the blood of the Son, and born of and indwelt by whom? The Spirit. The church flows. The nature of the church flows from the Trinitarian nature of God. And that we see all over this, the New Testament, especially in Ephesians chapter 1. It's very clear where Paul is showing how the church has been predestined, chosen by the Father, and then the beloved Son came and died for that group of people, and the Spirit now seals and indwells those same people chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son. And that's important because why are we talking about church membership and especially a church membership that's composed of people who are saved? The, the simple, simplest answer is because what the church is enables us to understand what the church does. So think about, if you think that the church is a mixed group, if you think that the church is composed of believers and unbelievers all together, then you're going to look at church polity, especially as the means of restraining evil. But if you look at the church as a group of people composed of men and women who were born of the Spirit, indwelled by the Spirit, and now they have the wisdom of God in their hearts, you're going to see church polity not simply as a means of restraining evil, but a means of empowering the saints to do the work of Christ. So, who we are, the nature, will determine what we do. We see in Acts, in the book of Acts, how the church is composed by those who are saved, those who believe the word. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, it says, those who what? receive his word were baptized. So you see that baptized people are those who first believe the word. And then they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Look at that. They were saved, baptized, and then they are what? Added to the church. Very important. There is a, a process here. And they devoted themselves, look at that, once they are now part of the church, now they can partake of the blessings of church life. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then verse 44 says, And all who believed were together. The church is composed of those who believe. And then verse 47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were. So who composed the church? Believers. Believers. Or Acts chapter 4. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. You see, it's only those who receive and believe the word, are baptized, and then they're added to the church. The numbers increase, not as people show up to church. Luke doesn't say, and the number increased by people showing up. The number increased by people what? Being saved, believing, being baptized. And that's important because the congregational aspect of our church can only work when we understand that the members of the church are men and women regenerated you cannot have a congregational polity when you have a mixed congregation it doesn't work because then carnal people are going to put carnal influences in their vote in the church also as we are thinking about membership and a lot of people say there is no membership in the bible right have you ever heard that there is no membership in the bible yeah, there's no membership if you're, if you're talking about AAA membership or Costco membership, Lions Club. Mem yeah, this type of membership, there's not. But it's fascinating how for Paul, one of the most m famous metaphors for the church is the body of Christ. And as a body, that implies what? Members. Members in the body. And the membership of the church must be composed of men and women who are in union with the head, who is Jesus Christ. So Paul says, For in one spirit we were all what? 
immersed, baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul is clear that the members of the church, they're all those who have been baptized, immersed into the body of Christ by faith, who have drunk of the Spirit. You see, Paul says that there are all sorts of people in the church. Right? Greek, Jews, men, women, slaves, free. But there is one thing that unites them all, and that is what? The Spirit, immersing them in Christ Jesus. Yeah, so we see membership. Uh, Paul says, you can open your Bibles there in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, verse 10. Galatians 6, verse 10. Paul says, So then... As we have opportunity, let us, good, let us do good to everyone, and especially, especially, and particularly to those who are. Uh, yes, those who are of the household of faith. Implying that the church as a household has a group of people that are well known among themselves. Not everybody who shows up at Jeff and Tracy's place and knock on the door there belong to her family. Amen? That's not how that works. Not anybody who knocks at Sean and Alyssa's house, suddenly they are part of the family, eating, sleeping there. No. That's not how that works. And suddenly people think that the church must be like that. People just show up and suddenly they, they must belong here. No, there's a whole process for us to know who belongs to the church. You need to know who the members are. And to know who they are requires some formal membership in the church. Pastors need to know who the flock are. Look, look at Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It's terrifying, in my opinion, pastors who do not care about membership. So you're telling me they are going to give an account for everyone who shows up at your church? Not me, brother. I'm going to give an account to those who committed themselves to my care by becoming members of the church. Not everyone who shows up here <laughs> is part of the flock that I'm going to give an account. And also, Christians need to have leaders over them. That's why you need to have membership. Paul, in, in 1 Timothy 5, he speaks of a list of names in the church with the names of the widows, meaning they knew who the widows were in their church. God Himself is presented as having a list with names of those who belong to his people, the book of life. Besides that, it's impossible, impossible to excommunicate somebody who is not a member of the body. So do you see how important it is to have a formal membership? And a formal membership of people who are saved, regenerated. So only those who, by the best of our, our limited abilities... Only those who have shown the fruit of the Spirit can be included as members in the church. So, to quote Lehman again, he says, Healthy congregationalism requires understanding and practicing biblical church membership. For starters, that means the membership should be regenerate. But it also means that the lines between the inside and the outside of the church should be kept clear. The members should understand their responsibilities and duties to one another. And members should submit to the church's discipline. That's why the members here, you, the members of this church, you, you have a directory with all the names of the members. They have a duty to be praying for them, knowing them who they are. He goes on to say, Today, churches commonly blur the lines between the inside and the outside of, of their membership in order to appear welcoming and inclusive. 
Healthy congregationalism is healthy church membership. A church member is someone whom the people of God have formally charged with the work of promoting and protecting the kingdom. So many churches, you think about how they want to be welcoming. They want to they, they appear nice to everybody. So why would we establish membership? Why would we tell some people that, no, sorry, just for members? That's so offensive. And now you see the state of the church, especially in America. And in, uh, historically, Baptists, they have employed two very important tools to keep the church holy unto the Lord. And one is church covenants and then church discipline. You all here, when you became a member, the members of this church, you received two copies of the church covenant. I have here. I always keep one with me. We all have. And there it is, the covenant profession. And then you verbalize your covenant, what you're going to be doing as part of a church member. And that has always been the practice of the Baptists. The Baptists have written hundreds of church covenants. I believe that there is a biblical precedent for such an action. So, for example, in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10, you can think about even the two tables of the Ten Commandments. It's not that there is half and half. It's two because there was one that was for the one performing the covenant, and the other one was a copy for the other group who came into covenant. A good church covenant is a precious safeguard for serious membership. Carnal people do not want to come under such polity. So many people we have talked about and they say we have a church covenant, you need to become a member. Oh no, thank you. Oh no. And then we say, oh thank you. It's good to know. But not only church covenants, but church discipline. Church discipline has been very precious, especially in the life of the Baptists, to preserve the holiness of the church. Was John Dagg, one of very special Baptist theologians, he said that when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. As soon as a church removes the discipline, Jesus is leaving that church together with their abandonment of church discipline. And sometimes we think about church discipline as only uh, excommunicating somebody, but church discipline has two aspects. The first one is formative church discipline. It's forming. It's formative church discipline is what we do in our daily basis. We spend time with one another. We help one another. We love one another. We exhort one another. We encourage one another. That's the life. And this formative church discipline is the greatest tool against, the, the, is the best instrument against the other aspect that is corrective church discipline. So you have formative church discipline and you have corrective church discipline. And the corrective church discipline is when you come to somebody who has not been repenting and the church says, we love you, but you're not behaving like a Christian. You need to repent. You need to change. And if that person does not change, the church says, we cannot see Christ in you. You are no longer part of the church. By Christ given authority, we are removing you from the body. So church discipline, church membership, they walk together. You cannot have faithful biblical church discipline if you don't have church membership. So, as members of this church, the members of Salem Reformed Baptist, we have a duty to the best of our limited abilities to try to get to know those who are aspiring to become members, to make sure that these people who profess to be Christians, they are indeed Christians, that they are believers, that they have at least a, a basic understanding of the gospel, that there are fruits of salvation in their lives. I'm sorry, but I don't want a members. I don't want a numbers. Honestly, I don't want a numbers. I want a faithfulness. I want people who are saved. 
So that's the first aspect of church polity is to make sure that we have a regenerate church membership. People who love Christ, that they know that Christ is the king and that their heart's desire is to honor Christ in the decisions that the church will be making. Second, another aspect of church polity is church ordinances. A lot of times we don't think about that. Most Christians don't even think about especially water baptism and the Lord's Supper as part of church government or part of the church's authority. Remember what we, we said earlier, that church, uh, church polity establishes who possess authority over the process of membership, discipline. And look at that, church polity. What role baptism and the Lord's Supper playing, they play in signifying, constituting members as members in the church as a church. So let's talk a little bit about the ordinances. First, what is the other name? So, some I, I use ordinance, but a lot of other Christians use another name for sacraments, right? So, a lot, many, especially you think about Presbyterians, uh, Dutch Reform, uh, Lutherans, Anglicans, they're going to use sacraments. Uh, I, I just have a hard time with the word sacrament. I think that even though they might deny it, it carries something of a special grace. So they see kind of water baptism and the Lord's Supper as something more special or that there is some special grace added to that. And I think that the first Baptist going to 1644 with the first London Confession, the, those first Baptists, they already... Instead of using the word sacrament, they use the word ordinance. What is an ordinance? An order. It's a command. So we say church ordinances because it is what the Lord Jesus commanded to the church. So we can say the Lord's Supper and water baptism are church ordinances because they're orders from Jesus to His church. So Jesus commanded us to do that. The apostles prescribe them throughout the New Testament and the church practices these two rites of water baptism and the Lord's Supper. And now I think it's important to not just call ordinance but church ordinance. Why? Because that was given, the authority was given to the church to perform water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave the authority to the church, nobody else. We, the problem nowadays is that we think that water baptism, the Lord's Supper, is this private, personal thing, so I do however I want to do. It was never like that. Water baptism, Lord's Supper, it's given to the church. It's a communal. It's in community that we obey the Lord by doing these things. One is baptized into Christ's body. One partake of the Lord's Supper, declaring that he's still in Christ's body. But the other question is, are those the only two ordinances? Think about. Did Jesus just give two ordinances to the church? When he gathered together to worship, Jesus commands us to pray. He commands us to read the word. He commands us to preach, to sing, to give, to fellowship. So those are all ordinances of Christ to His church. And they're all means of grace. So I think we need to be careful with the, the, the idea that the Lord's Supper and water baptism, somehow they are more special in the sense that they give you something that the other things don't give you. Because think about even the Lord's Supper and the baptism, they require the preaching of God's Word. There must be the preaching to explain what we are doing. Not that just by doing that there is this amazing grace. Just No, there, 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 there needs the preaching to explain. But then there is this visible aspect. So even though I don't think that the Lord's Supper and the water baptism are some special means of grace that the other ordinances do not, carry with it, I think that they have some very important aspects in the life of the church. So we can say that, think about water baptism, 
pictures our inauguration in the life of the church. And the Lord's Supper picture symbolizes our continuation in the life of the church. There is a symbolism in these two ordinances that are very precious. But not that somehow they have some more grace than the preaching, than the prayers, than the fellowship. I just think that there is a crucial symbolic aspect when the church celebrates that there is an aspect that the gospel is being made visible by these two ordinances. And that's what makes, especially Baptists, to say there are two ordinances, the water baptism and the Lord's Supper. But it's because of the, the symbolism that it carries with it. So, to administer baptism or the Lord's Supper is to make an authoritative pronouncement. We usually don't think about water baptism and the Lord's Supper as part of the church's authority. Lehman, he says, the ordinances enact the church's jurisdictional and legal, revelatory and interpretive speech. To baptize someone in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit is to make a truth claim about a person's union with Christ and citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It also places a person within the jurisdiction of the church and the church's administration of Christ's law. Brothers and sisters, when we as a church, we baptize someone into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are making an authoritative declaration. Under the power and authority of Christ, we are declaring we are pronouncing, we are not making you, but we are declaring and we are pronouncing that you indeed are part of the body of Christ. By all that we see, we can as a church under the authority of Christ baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit saying, it's authoritative. We are declaring that you, we are declaring to the whole world that you belong to Christ Jesus. It's a political declaration. Because we are declaring that that person now belongs to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So water baptism is this initial authoritative declaration. And the Lord's Supper is a continual authoritative reaffirmation of that initial declaration. So in the Lord's Supper, we are together reaffirming that we all indeed belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by being welcomed into His table. And that's why historically, Baptists have been very serious about not only the process of church membership, but also baptism. Who should be baptized? And about the Lord's Supper. Who should partake of the Lord's Supper? So we think about baptism. People have come to us and said, hey, I want to be baptized. What, what did he do? Oh, great, let's baptize you. No, that's wonderful. But let's walk together. So there is baptism class. There is reading that must be done. There is a voting that needs to be done for the church to say, yes, we want this person to be baptized. We believe that he indeed belongs to Christ. So there is a process. The same with the Lord's Supper. We believe that the Lord has given the church authority to say, no, you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper. No, no, no. Your life does not indicate that you belong to the body of Christ, that you are in Christ. So no, you should not partake of the Lord's Supper here. Or ever. <laughs> Baptist polity is congregational. It means that the whole church makes a judgment on the who. Who should be expelled and who should be accepted in the church and that means water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Think about baptism. We are Salem Reformed Baptists. And the name Baptist derives from baptism, the, the ordinance of water baptism. And, and it's not just, you know, it's, oh, they're Baptists because they think that they need more water than the Presbyterians. No, no, no. You know, that's what people say sometimes. Oh, these Baptists, they just need more water. No, there is a massive theology behind baptism. We believe that the ordinance, the command to be baptized by immersion, is a beautiful, a beautiful picture of the gospel reality. 
And that should be reserved just for those who are believers. Those who have shown that they have died with Christ, that they have been raised with Christ to a new life. So brothers and sisters, you're not Baptists just because you need more water. It's because the amount of water is important to show the picture of the gospel of someone literally going to the waters of death with Jesus, dying with Jesus, and raising to a new life with Christ Jesus. And that had been the practice of the early church until, until, think about especially when Constantine becomes the head of the church in the Roman Empire. And then suddenly everyone is being baptized, baptizing babies. The, the death rate of baby was high, so let's just baptize them so they can be saved. So he has, and just with the Reformation where these first Puritans, these Baptists coming to the Word of God and say, no, we need to baptize do- those who are believers. And that is by immersion to you. Think about we baptize someone. What is the formula that we say when you baptize someone? We baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is, honestly, to baptize someone into the name, it is an official transfer. Slaves, they were brought into the market, and the owner would say, now you are... Mine, you belong to such a name. There was an official transaction in the marketplace where this slave now belongs to a different name. And that's what happens in baptism. There is this change of uh, lordship. We leave the lordship of the world and darkness and Satan to the lordship of the triune God. The true and internal change of lordship came with the work of regeneration, but it's demonstrated by the beautiful, beautiful act of being baptized, immersed under the waters. And that's what Paul used in Romans chapter 6 when he's talking about, don't you know that you're baptized with Christ? How can you be living in sin or even entertaining the idea of living in sin when you are immersed with Christ, you died with Christ, and you're raised with Christ to a new life? Stop with that. Remember your baptism. So, you can say that, especially looking at some texts, we see that water baptism is a very, very political act. We don't think about that, but to be baptized is a political manifesto. For you are declaring that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your allegiance. When you're baptized, your ultimate allegiance is no longer to a monarch, to a dictator, to the Republican Party, to the Democratic Party. Your ultimate allegiance belongs to whom? The Lord Jesus. That's what you're doing at baptism. That's why it's an authoritative declaration. That's why it belongs to the church. How many people throughout the world, they profess to be Christians, and that's okay, it's okay inside the house, until the time when they say, I'm going to be baptized. And as soon as they baptize, they go to their baptism. Throughout the world, that happens frequently. They go to their baptism with their suitcases. Because they will never go back to their homes. Because that is a political act. He say, now I belong to Jesus Christ and that's a public demonstration. Murray Harris, great book. Uh, he says, the book is Slave of Christ, a New Testament metaphor for total devotion to Christ. He says, we may profitably view baptism as a rite that marks a transfer of ownership from being in subjection to the ruler of the realm of the air, the God of this age, now to being part of a people claimed by God for his own possession. He goes on to say, on this understanding, the person being baptized passes into the possession of the triune God, the Lord Jesus, and he comes under new control and protection. So in baptism, there's 
a symbolic, a signified transference of believers into the permanent possession and safekeeping of the omnipotent trinity. Beautiful. And, then, uh, and the authority was given to the church to officiate that. Sadly, you see so many baptisms taking place out of the church. So how many people you know that uh, in the family, the, the, the child says, I'm a Christian. They say, okay, good, here, I'll baptize you. And then you have this family thing where the dad is baptizing the kid. There's no church involvement. Or you have a group of kids, a youth group, and meeting somewhere. It's not even part of a church. They're just, and then somebody says, oh, I accept Jesus. Oh, let's go and baptize him. That baptism was given to the local church. It's part of the authority given to the church. You hear how many people go to Israel and they, they get baptized in the Jordan River. Why? I, I, Nothing, nothing against if you did, but I'm saying there is no point. Under the new covenant, we don't have a, a, a holy land or a holy water. It's wonderful to go and see where the Lord Jesus was baptized, but to go and be baptized there without your church, that makes no sense. But that's what I'm saying. It became the thing that it's all about my experience. It's what I want to experience. So, it's part of the church, the authority given to the local church. And that's why water baptism is an important aspect of church polity. It's deeply related to the church's structure and authority. It's where, where we are as a church declaring this one person, the one, now is part of the many. The one officially now becomes the many. That one little member who died outside the body, now is placed into the body of Christ through baptism. How about the Lord's Supper? While the water baptism pictures this inauguration, the Lord's Supper pictures continuation to consummation. Because we're supposed to keep doing until uh, He returns. So there's this aspect of what was symbolized in baptism, now is continued through the Lord's Supper. Okay, so in, in baptism there was this first picture of okay i died with christ was raised with christ that's the inauguration and now the lord's supper is this picture of communion because i die and i was raised with christ now i can come to his table and fellowship with him constantly therefore the lord's supper renews that legal and jurisdictional identif identification with christ and christ's people I, li I like what john hammett says he says if baptism is the wedding ceremony in which a believer publicly declares his or her commitment to Christ, the Lord's Supper is similar to anniversary celebration in which the wedding vows are renewed. He said, in fact, some Baptist churches in earlier times would recite their church covenant prior to observing the Lord's Supper, verbally renew, renewing their commitment to the Lord and to one another. The Lord's Supper was given to Christ, was given by Christ to His church. It's a church ordinance. The church has the authority to welcome and say, no, you're not welcome to the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is also known as communion. It's a beautiful name, communion. It's a biblical name. Because we're celebrating the fellowship, the koinonia that we have with Christ and His people. So Paul says, the cup, of, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, communion, fellowship, participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There is a massive contradiction for people who do not belong to a church, for people who do not have love for the local church, for people who do not aspire to be part of a church to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a contradiction. 
Because when you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, you are declaring your communion with Christ. And you cannot have just communion with Christ. You have to have communion with Christ in what? His body, His people. So that's why we believe that in order for people to rightly partake of the Lord's Supper, first of all, you must be a Christian, you must be baptized, and you must long to be in a local church. We understand that there are times when there is a transition taking place, and we are very uh, gracious to those who are in a transition time, moving from one church to the other. And But there are people who have been in this transition for 20 years, and that's not good. The Lord's Supper should never be done in isolation of the local church. It's always in the context of the church. Uh, I, li- I like what Schreiner writes. He says, communion is communion. Disciples eat the bread together in community. The Lord's Supper is not merely a meal where I celebrate what Jesus did for me. It's a communion meal where the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, give thanks for what Jesus did for us. A new family has been forged through the sweat and blood of the Savior. Sadly, like baptism, the Lord's Supper has become something very personal, private. So suddenly you start having people having communion at weddings. Where is that in the Bible? It's a church ordinance. The church must partake of that. People partaking in their own homes by themselves. No, that's a, it's a church celebration, the Lord's Supper. The, Lord's, the local church, think about the local church. These two ordinances are beautiful pictures of the, how the church is formed and kept. So water baptism shows how the church is formed, and then the Lord's Supper shows how the church is kept by communion with Jesus. It's formed by believing, dying, and raising with Jesus, and then the church is kept by fellowship, coming to His table, eating from Jesus, delighting in Him. So, in baptism, the one becomes many, and in the Lord's Supper, the many becomes what? One. That's all you have. In baptism, the one who is apart becomes part of the many. And in the Lord's Supper, the many become one. And it's an official declaration, the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, the whole church, that's what Paul says, we are proclaiming. You know, I do most of the preaching here. But at the Lord's Supper, we are all preaching through symbolic action. It's the whole church proclaiming, declaring the gospel together. There's also the aspect of remembering. And remember that remembering the Bible is not just bringing something to mind, it's to act upon. So, what are we celebrating Tuesday? Fourth of July, Independence Day. But you see, it's not just remember, remembering, we are acting, there's celebration, there's a party. You stop, you think, you do things. It's very similar to the Lord's Supper. It's this official holiday that we have where we stop to celebrate, to reflect upon what Christ has done for us. And Paul commands the whole church, the whole church is supposed to discern the body, otherwise judgment will fall upon the church. So think about that. You do not baptize yourself. Did anybody here, do you ever baptize yourself? (laughs) Good. You don't baptize yourself. The church baptizes you. You don't have a single occasion in the Bible of somebody baptizing himself. You're always baptized by somebody. Passive. Baptized by somebody. Why do we think when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I have the right to do what I want? And I know people get offended. 
It's a church polity, but people get offended with me because I'm the one speaking and, and I completely understand. But people get really offended because we, we fence the table. We, we don't believe that everyone should partake of the Lord's Supper. So people say, man, that, that hurts my feeling. And I understand that can hurt your feeling. But that hurts our feeling as a church when people partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. There is judgment for those who are partaking and there is judgment upon the church that is allowing people to partake in an unworthy manner. And part of partaking in an unworthy manner, as you read the text that Paul says, is not discerning the body. Is not living the right life in the body of Christ. So I hope that you all might help those who get offended. I had people leaving, stomping, walking away from church before when they heard that we have guidelines, that we have a fence, right? Sometimes people think about fencing the table as putting a literal fence. No, fencing the table means what we say here, you have in your bulletin. We strive to protect the holiness of the Lord's Supper. It's right there in your bulletin, the Lord's Table. By teaching that this beautiful celebration is reserved for Christians, those who have been water baptized upon their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and they live lives marked by repentance, who love, are committed to, and are in good standing, not under discipline, with a local church. And for those who match that, we say, man, you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. But there is something very peculiar because I have partake of the Lord's Supper in other churches, but it's not like partaking here. I'm sorry. Because there is one aspect of your family. You are with your family sitting at the table with your brothers and sisters. So even though sometimes if I'm in other church, they have the Lord's Supper, and if they're okay with somebody who does not belong to that church to partake, I partake, and it's precious because we get a picture of the universal church, but it's missing something. Because it's so much more precious partaking with those brothers whom you have covenanted together to serve the Lord. So, to wrap up here, in water baptism we make a public declaration of a change of allegiance. It's a political polity. It's a political declaration of change of kingship. And at the Lord's Supper, we officially declare... Remember and celebrate that change of allegiance, continuing that political revolution. That now I'm drinking of the Lord's cup. I'm sharing in His life. So I hope that helps you all to understand the importance of polity especially in the areas of church membership and the ordinances of the church. Christ has given an authority to the church to welcome and to exclude people from His table. And we must strive to the best that we can to walk in step with the Holy Spirit, looking at His Word and obeying His commandments, and making sure that we as a church, we are honoring the Lord as we come to the ordinances. Amen. And I pray that the Lord will help us, bless us, especially as we transition to partake of the Lord's Supper. I pray that He would help us to see the importance and the beauty of this ordinance in the life of the local church. Let us pray. Father, we, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Help us to be faithful, to obey your word, Lord. As it comes to the area of membership, water baptism, Lord's Supper. We want to be found faithful to you, Lord. We don't want to simply please people. We want to please you, Lord. And oftentimes when we please you, we displease people. But we don't want to displease people out of our own sinfulness. 
but because of our effort to be faithful to you, Lord. And those who long to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that your Holy Spirit would awake a desire to belong to the church, Lord. Because we are indeed celebrating our life in the body of Christ. And that would make no sense to celebrate our life in the body of Christ when we do not belong to the body. Help us to partake in a, in a way that brings glory to you. It's good, it's very good to come to your table, Lord. Have fellowship with you. And those here who are saved, those here who are in the process of membership, those who belong to another church, they're more than welcome to come and, and, and celebrate this wonderful order that you have given us. To proclaim together that we are in allegiance with you, Lord. And you invite us into your table. So please bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.